of the Community Radio Network. Here we go. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. As the war machine keeps turning. And hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national, international events Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. That's 3CR in Melbourne. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We may have a few days delay in podcasting this particular program but it will go up as a podcast in the near future. My name is Joseph Toscombe, hosting today's program. If you wonder what anarchism is all about, simple concept, anarchos, without rulers. It's a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the fate of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people? Inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggles, the struggle to share, devolve power, and the struggle to hold wealth in common. So if you're involved in those struggles to decentralise power and uh, share wealth, well... Whether you acknowledge it or not, under the definition, you are an anarchist. I'm t- sorry to tell you. What a week. What a week. What a win-win situation. Save the world, make a buck. How Australians reach net zero emissions by 2050. We can save the world and make a buck at the same time. Isn't that extraordinary? Now, I've listened to our beloved Prime Minister, Mr Morrison, well, some of the time, and uh, unlike most legislative agendas, I've looked at the policy, which only took me about 42 seconds to read, how Australia is going to reach net zero emissions. But listening to Mr Morrison and his Cabinet colleagues, it seems we've... On the gravy train. That's right. We're on the gravy train to making a fortune. And at the same time, we'll be able to save the world. But the beautiful thing about all this, if you look at the plan, that hasn't got any modelling, but that's a different story. Let's not worry about modelling. If you look at the plan, we're all going to be winners. Regional Australia is going to be winners. The gas industry is going to be winners. The coal mine industry is going to be winners. Urban winges are going to be winners. We're all going to be winners. And we're all going to make money out of this. Isn't that extraordinary? We're going to save the world and make a buck at the very same time. Now, it took Mr Morrison a little bit of time to get some members of the National Party across, at least a majority, not that 
that actually influenced uh, Barnaby Joyce, the Deputy Prime Minister, or uh, Bridget McKenzie, the leader of the Nationals in the Senate. I mean, they both don't still don't think that climate change exists, that all this is unnecessary. But the fact is, there will be winners and there will be losers. It's that simple. And the losers are us. And I'll explain why. A lot of people think of climate change as some existential dilemma. Something that really has no impact on them. And if there's one group of Australians who understands that the climate change is morphing into a climate emergency, it's the farmers and the graziers in regional and rural Australia. They have seen the climate change. And they have seen a radical transformation as far as their grazing and farming practices are concerned. And when you have the National Farmers Federation jumping on board the uh, net zero emissions bandwagon, you begin to understand that their practical experiences are having an impact. And they need to do something. Unfortunately, as far as the coal mining and gas industry is concerned, they don't think we should take any action. Because, as far as they're concerned, it doesn't really matter if the temperatures increase 2%, 2.5%, 3%. Who cares? Because it's not going to really affect us, is it? Well, already, something I've spoken about on this program of a number of occasions, the Torres Strait Islands are going under. Now, the average height of the Torres Strait Islands is 1.5 metres. And... I think most Australians wouldn't even know, especially in the south where I'm broadcasting from, wouldn't even know what a Torres Strait Islander is. Now, Torres Strait Islanders make up about 20 to 25% of First Nations people. They have their own flag, which came about as part of a competition, which is not owned by an individual or an individual family. It's actually free to each body. It's a recognised flag, and when you look at the three recognised Australian flags, you'll all know about the Australian flag, and most of you will know about the Aboriginal flag, but very few of you will obviously have seen a Torres Strait Islander flag, and if you see it, you think it's, you don't know what it's doing there. And about 20% of Torres Strait Islanders still live in the Torres Strait, and about 80% have now been moved to the mainland for a variety, have moved to the mainland for a variety of reasons, and it's a distinct culture distinct languages, distinct traditions. And if the climate emergency continues, they will be inundated. Already, the islands of Bogu and Saibai, which are less than three kilometres from the Papua New Guinea coast, are under increasing pressure. And the salt water now is enroached into their... uh, Gardens, which means 
where they produce a lot of their food, which means they can't even produce food, agriculture, practice their traditional agricultural models. Now, the situations have become so serious that Torres Strait traditional landowners are now taking the federal government to court because they are saying, quite rightly, the federal government is not taking the the situation seriously and if temperature rise up to if they rise up to 2% the whole of the Torres Strait will disappear and we'll see a cultural genocide of people who lived here for over 10,000 years in the Torres Strait so it does have an impact and if your holidays like mine were disturbed by the uh, bushfires in 2019 and the extent of those bushfires. And if you're one of the, those people who's one of the, your relatives died, and there were over 400 people who died because of heat exposure in 2019, well, you understand that the climate change is morphing into a climate emergency and we need to do something about it. Now, the trouble with Australian politics is simple. The trouble with Australian politics is that it is based on a parliamentary system. And when we have the next federal election, it must most likely in March next year, between March and May, but most likely in March, the fact is that the election will not be decided in the majority of the electorates. Most of the electorates in this country are what are called safe electorates, one or the other of the major political parties, because we do have... A duopoly, and I've spoken about the duopoly we have as far as political parties are concerned in this country and all the legislation that has changed in order to uh, guarantee that a duopoly will continue under the current electoral system. So the dilemma is that most elections are fought in a dozen or so marginal electorates. And many of these marginal electorates, as we saw at the last federal election, sit in central Queensland or coal mining regions, regions which are totally dependent on gas or coal mining. And the federal government's uh, sweep into power at the last election was directly related to their ability to have those marginal electorates swing in their favour because of their policies regarding net zero emissions. Now, it's all very well to wave a piece of paper and say, it's all very well to wave a piece of paper and say, well, this is our plan. This is more like a wish list. Wishing a prayer reminds me of wishing a prayer. It's more of a wish list than a plan. Because it ignores the changes to be made and it's relying on a number of interesting things happening as far as technological innovation is concerned, which are based on hydrogen, energy and carbon sequestration, you know, and a few other little things, you know, and a lot of uh, 
So it's relying on a lot of things which may or may not ever occur. So although Mr Morrison now has an entry ticket to the Glasgow Conference in a fortnight's time, he is really on the outer as far as many nations are concerned. Now, it is a problem. Because with our decreased dependency on China as an export market, Australia will be increasingly dependent on Britain and Japan as an export market. And what will happen as far as the European Union is concerned and the Japanese, what will happen is sooner rather than later tariffs will be imposed on nation states which don't have proper plans to deal with the climate emergency. And if we want to shift, Australian governments want to shift their focus back to Europe as far as exports are concerned and that affects every primary producer in this country. The fact is that tariffs will be introduced against producers who are not taking the necessary steps to address the climate emergency. That will mean there'll be less investment in the country. That will mean that exports will be reduced that will mean less revenue for the country and it will mean job losses, in inverted commas. So not taking, not taking any action or pretending to take action does have real consequences. Not just in terms of increasing temperatures and all the problems associated with increasing temperatures in this country and the rest of the world, but also problems in terms of trade, also problems in terms of attracting investment, also problems in terms of the increased cost of borrowing money. This is the type of stuff that you know we should be seeing in the government guild at ABC and the corporate-owned media. And unfortunately... We don't see this debate. We see ourselves as some type of isolated European enclave in an Asian setting that wants to go back to the motherland in Europe, the old art, and somehow we think that this is the way forward for this country, whether it's our defence policy, whether it's nuclear submarines, whether it's our increased dependence in the United States of America for defence, and the list goes on and on. The dilemma is that what we are doing is we are building barricades around this country, barricades which we think will protect us in the long but barricades which will destroy us as a viable society in the long run. So think about it. I mean, climate, the climate emergency is not just one little thing up there in the, in the horizon. It's all interlinked. Everything on the planet is interlinked. That's what the guy theory is about. Everything is interlinked. And if you have 
something happens here, it may have unintended consequences there. So it is a real issue. It needs to be tackled. And if we think it's a win-win situation and everybody's going to win, well, we're not. It's that simple. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program will be podcast in the next uh, few days. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try a riddle. I've never tried a riddle in over 40 years of broadcasting The Anarchist World this week. Now, I'm going to leave you for a riddle, which I'll try to answer later on in the program. Now, what do the climate emergency, cosmetic surgery and Crown Casino in Melbourne have in common? I'll repeat the uh, riddle again, or the question. It's more of a riddle. What do the climate emergency, cosmetic surgery and Crown Casino have in common? And don't tell me they all start with C. I know that. <laughs> I'm looking for a little bit you know, more sophisticated answer. Well, it's not that sophisticated, but uh, it's something they all have in common which has brought them to the attention of the uh, us. Okay. Now, I'd just like to um, highlight a few events which are coming up, and I think they're important events. You may not think they're important events. Now, unfortunately, because of the continuing COVID-19 impositions and restrictions, we'll find that a lot of these events we which were national events, won't be national this year. Now, the reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations will go ahead this year in Ballarat, but they'll be modified in order to decrease risk to uh, participants and they'll also be modified because we don't expect uh, any or very few interstate uh, people will be able to attend and usually there is a a reasonable interstate contingent at the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebration. So it'll be broken up into four parts and obviously you're welcome to any of these parts but it's not the usual, you know, 18 hours extravaganza. It will start at 4am. We will have the uh, Eureka Dawn Ceremony and after that we will have a communal breakfast. So that's on the agenda. That's at Eureka Park in Ballarat, the corner of Stall and Eureka Street in Ballarat. The next section will be meeting at Bakery Hill to give out this year's Eureka Australia medals. There'll be six medals given out to activists. Some from interstate will not be able to attend personally, but maybe they'd like to come the next year, but we will give out those medals. And there will be uh, an international recipient also. So there are six Eureka Australia medals. They will be given out at Bakery Hill. We find this is a a great place to go. Uh, Bakery Hill on the 29th of uh, November 1854. This is the very spot where the Eureka Oath was taken. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. We won't be walking or marching or walking, basically, from Eureka Park to Bakery Hill. We'll just use um, transport. If it takes two or three trips to bring everybody across, that's fine. So we will not have the marching this year in order to, you know, make people feel safe in terms of COVID-19. The next step after Bakery Hill, and Bakery Hill will start at about 10am and finish about uh, 11am, 
the next uh, point we will go to is the Old Ballarat Cemetery to pay our respects at the graves of the Eureka Rebels. That'll be at 12 o'clock. And the next thing, and again we will ferry people from Bakery Hill to the Old Ballarat Cemetery because, again, there'll be no march or walk in between the two situations. And then the last segment, starting at about between 1 and 2, will be a late lunch and a bit of relaxation at Eureka Park. So it's a scaled-down event. Um, Encourage people to come. We don't expect as many people as normal, as most of our interstate uh, participants will not be able to uh, take part this year. But again, put it in your calendar. It's Friday the 3rd of December, 4am to 4pm. Okay, now, we should have material go up on the websites in the next uh, week or so. Now, the next thing I'm really concerned about is the West Papuan Rent Collective. Now, the next open day will be on Sunday the 5th of December from 1 to 4pm. There'll be a community lunch, and if you're a member of the West uh, West Papuan Rent Collective, it's three. If you're not a member of the West Papuan Rent Collective, it's a $15 cost for the lunch. It's not compulsory that you buy lunch. And then there'll be guest speakers. But this year... There'll also be something interesting. We'll be having an auction of uh, uh, David McKenzie chairs. Now, Mr David McKenzie is a relatively well-known maker of furniture from recycled timbers and he's donating four chairs, which will be auctioned on the day. And every cent that is raised, unlike uh, most situations, will go directly into the West Parkwood Rent Collective. Now, as far as the West Papua Rent Collective is concerned, things have improved over the last two months, but things are still desperate. We still need at least another nine to ten members, new members or old members which have uh, stopped uh, contributing to restart contributing. We need another nine to ten members to continue for the office to continue in Docklands. That's at 838 Collins Street. Now, this is a important, pivotal part of the West Papua independence struggle, both on a national and international scale. It has now been opened, courtesy of the West Papua Rent Collective, for seven years and hopefully we'll be able to continue this office until West Papua independence is declared. And if you think I'm hallucinating, let's not forget things can change very rapidly. Now, the philosophy behind the West Papua Rent Collective is very, very simple. The West Papua Rent Collective members pay the rent. That frees the West Papua activists to run their independent struggle the way they see fit. The West Papua Rent Collective has no involvement in the day-to-day running of the office, although members of the West Papua Rent Collective, individual members, are involved in activities based at the office. But it plays no role 
in how the office functions, how it structures decisions that are made, how they organise their independence struggle. But what it does, it provides a focus of activity, both real and virtual, in terms of providing an outlet for the West Papuan Provisional Government, which is now has been declared in West Papua. Now, if you think things are difficult in this country, just to highlight a few things, and, you know, we are looking, as I said, this is, I'll highlight a few things. Over 500,000 West Papuans have died in independence struggle in the last 60 years. That's the independence struggle against the Indonesian authorities. Now, when you consider there are only 1 million West Papuans in West Papua today, that is an extraordinary price the people of West Papua have paid. Then we've got the Transmigration Program, which various successive Indonesian governments have been pushing, where people from other parts of Indonesia are brought to West Papua and given free land, which belongs to the traditional owners. Then on top of that, you've got the inherent racism, which is occurring in this place. Then you've got the military occupation, where the military has a sizable, huge present in West Papua. Then we have the, the extrajudicial murder, torture, and imprisonment of West Papuan activists, which continues on a day-to-day basis. And on top of that, you've got lack of health facilities because of the lack of investment in West Papua, although the Freeport Gold Mine in West Papua bankrolls to a significant degree a significant proportion of the Indonesian economy. And then on top of that, you've got COVID-19. And the important thing is the West Papua's only West Papua is only about seventy kilometres from the Australian coast. So it is our near neighbour. Now the only major political party in this country which supports West Papua independence is the Australian Greens. The Labour Party, the National Party, the Liberal Party, One Nation, United Australia Party, and the list goes on and on, have no interest in upsetting the Indonesians. No interest whatsoever. Most of the West Papuans in this country are refugees who've come across in dribs and drabs over the last 30 to 40 years. Obviously, with this country's immigration policies and uh, refugee policies, since the last uh, major group came across about 11 years ago, there has really been no way that West Papuan refugees can get to this country. And if they do, they're sent back. And we've seen the situation where a uh, Canberra student was sent back and then was murdered when he got back to West Papua. That was only less than a year ago. So the list goes on and on. So what does, the, what does it entail to be a member of the West Papuan Rent Collective? Well, it's a dollar a day, $365 a year, 366 leap year it's a dollar a day you can donate monthly you can donate yearly we're not a charity it is not tax deductible 
So people who donate to the West Papuan Rent Collective donate because they think the question of West Papuan independence is important. And if you've been thinking about buying a Christmas or a New Year's present for a friend who's got everything, why don't you buy them a West Papuan Rent Collective membership for a year? That'll entitle them to three lunches, three free lunches at the office. So it's a dollar, and it's very simple. It's a simple process. You can either go to the DFAT West Papua and look at the details, or you can go to um, the Anarchist Men Institute, or you can give me a ring on 0439 395 489. 0439-395-489. What we do is we give you the details. It's just a matter of putting the money in a, in a Commonwealth bank. It's very easy, simple. Nobody checks up on you. Nobody asks you why you missed a month. That's up to you. But we need more members. It's a very simple idea. We need more members to keep the West Papuan office alive. So if you'd like to join the Rent Collective, it doesn't matter where you live in Australia or even if you're listening to this program via the web on 3cr.org.au as we're streaming live, you can join the Rent West Papua Rent Collective. It's very simple. You can email me at info at pipsy.net or info at anarchistage at yahoo.com or you can leave a message on 0439 395 489 or you can actually even write me a letter. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. I'm the convener of the West Papua and Rent Collective and proud to be the convener and proud to be part of an initiative which over the last seven years have, has given the West Papuans a voice, not just locally, not just Australia-wide, but internationally. Currently, the West Papuan office is involved in the struggle to place West Papua on the United Nations decolonisation list, and they're getting closer and closer to that uh, the numbers they require to place it on the decolonisation list. So if you want to do something effective and you want to see how it works, I encourage you to come along to the Open Day on Sunday the 5th of December at 838 Collins Street. You just walk around the back. There's the area. There's the special meeting room. And the list goes on at 1pm to 4pm. And if you can't make it and you want to join the West Papua Rent Collective before that, and as I said, we need another 9 to 10 members to keep the collective going for another 12 months. And obviously in 12 months' time, I'll be hopefully once again asking you to join the West Papua Rent Collective. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. Now let's go back to that riddle. What do the climate emergency, cosmetic surgery and Crown Casino have in common? Yes, yes, I know they all start with C, but there is another C involved here. It's called capitalism. Private investment for private profit. Now, over the last few days, we've seen the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, their um, 
you know, Cornerstone Program, Four Corners, talk about the rorts in the cosmetic surgery industry in this country. This is nothing new. Everybody has known for ages that the cosmetic surgery, there's a lot of rorts involved. And it's all about deregulation and making a buck. Private investment for private profit. This is an industry that regulates itself but cuts corners at the expense of the people they claim they are helping in order to make a buck. Simple. Private investment for private profit. Let's go to the climate emergency. Simple. The world in 2021 finds itself in in this situation because of increased greenhouse emissions. Why have increased greenhouse emissions continued at such unabated levels? Again, once again, simple concept. Private investment for private profit. If the world economy is dominated by a system that needs to make ever-increasing profits for its major shareholders or owners, irrespective of the human, social or environmental cost, and deregulation is the name of the game, what do you think will happen? Well, obviously, there's going to be collateral damage. And that collateral damage is increased greenhouse emissions. Because at the end of the day, in a capitalist economy, especially one which is uh, dominated by corporations, not individuals, you know, fighting the good fight, trying to make a buck in the real world. Obviously, in such a situation where corporations have more power than most governments around the world, most sovereign nation states, and even in those countries where they don't have as much power as a sovereign nation state, they at least have enough power to influence the legislative agenda taken by a sovereign nation state. Obviously, private investment for private profit helps to stir the greenhouse pot. Simple. Crown Casino. Now, we've just had a royal commission in Victoria and they basically said to us, well, Crown Casino is too big to fail. It employs too many people It gives the government too much money. Although it's involved in corrupt behaviour, although it's involved in racketeering, although it launders money, although its behaviour is unconscionable, although it cuts corners, although there's no real regulation as far as Crown Casino is concerned, it needs to make a buck. And although we're going to get put in a new manager, an external manager. The fact is that in 48 hours' time, at 6pm on Friday, Crown Casino will be open for business. No wonder. Usually when you have a royal commission, usually when you have a royal commission, a company's shares go down. Well, in this case, when the findings came out that the licence would not be revoked and and uh, Crown Casino, despite all its shortcomings and illegal behaviour, would be allowed to trade, share prices went up around 8%, which means poor Mr Packer, who's got his own issues, made $200 million 
in one day because of his 35% shareholding in the company, he made $200 million courtesy of the Royal Commission. So what's Crown Casino based on? Simple concept. Private investment for private profit. Simple. So if you allow, whether it's cosmetic surgery, whether it's climate emergency, whether it's Crown Casino or uh, private nursing homes or private childcare centres or private providers in the National Disability Insurance Scheme, if you give them their head, you have no regulation, you're pumping government money to keep them afloat, you turn a blind eye to behaviour which we as a community have to pay for. For example, Crown Casino, all the damage they cause, we pay for. How many court cases, have? how many people have appeared in court because they've stolen from their employer or their families and gambled it away? And at the end of the day, do we ask Crown Casino to give it back? No. We as a community absorb the costs. That's the costs. So, the common denominator is another C, capitalism, private investment for private profit. Okay. Another little interesting thing is, and, you know, I've been warning about this for a while, but before we get on to that, I, I, I've got to really pay compliments to the Victorian state government. 48 hours ago, brilliant media juxtaposition. Brilliant media juxtaposition. That was 48 hours ago. Brilliant. It was just wonderful. On the same day, the Royal Commission announced its findings on Crown Casino, the Victorian state Labor government put in a bill in Parliament regarding future pandemics because they knew that this new bill in Parliament was going to cause a little bit of friction not just in terms of the draconian laws which will be put in place to punish people who don't you know, follow the uh, pandemic advice, but the fact is that power has now been concentrated in the hands of a Premier who has the ability to extend pandemic restrictions ad nauseum every three months without even going to Parliament. And more interesting, during the past pandemic here in Victoria, the restrictions we were put in place were put in place because of the Chief Health Officer's directives. And under a state of emergency, under the declaration of pandemic, it was the Chief health officer who made the decision to introduce restrictions to depoliticise depoliticise reaction to a pandemic, which obviously doesn't respect political differences or political opinions or anything. So the chief health officer was the person who made the decision based on science, based on fact. Not pseudoscience, 
and conspiracy theories, you know, fed by Facebook algorithms, but science. But the new legislation the Victorian Parliament, which will be passed the next few days, it may be blocked in the upper house, but I doubt it, removes the responsibility from the chief health officer who then advises the health minister, who then advises the premier, who then declares a declaration of a pandemic, who then is in the position to roll over that declaration automatically every three months without going to parliament. That's the crux of the matter. It's about concentration of power. And as I said about a year ago, or it was over a year ago, when the Victorian government wanted to extend the restrictions for another 12 months, courtesy of the Animal Justice Party, the Reason Party and the Greens, who hold the balance of power in the Legislative Council, that that pandemic declaration should be restricted to a four-week or a four-week period and Parliament needs to agree to an extension for the next four weeks, the next four weeks, the next four weeks. Because you need an oversight on the type of power that can be exercised in this situation. Think about it. But that was a brilliant juxtaposition. I loved it. Loved it. If you ever, you know, you worry about media manipulation, well, this was brilliant. I mean, they've they've outdone the media. Brilliant juxtaposition. On the very day that one of the most important Royal Commission's findings was going to be announced, the state government announced their new bill regarding the declaration of pandemic. So they wanted to water down the response or the half response or the pathetic watered-down response to Crown Casino and they wanted to water down the response to the bill. And interestingly, it worked brilliantly. Brilliantly. I need to talk to their um, public relations people, which we're paying for, obviously, because the government there, we pay for that, because, you know, it's the type of public relations we need for public interest before corporate interest. Here we are trying to get members on an ethical, moral basis, you know, not on a win-win, you know, fairy floss policies, but, you know, on an ethical, moral basis, and we're having so much headwind as an organisation in order to get new members, in order to register as a political party. But (coughs) the Labor government here in Victoria, brilliant. Brilliant juxtaposition. All right, let's move on. Now, you may think it's a bit esoteric, but there's been a military coup in Sudan. So what the bloody hell has a military coup in Sudan got to do with Australia? Well, let's not forget that those rivers of black gold which have been pouring out of the Middle East for the last 50 to 60 years will dry up with net zero emissions. 
So those feudal monarchies in the like the House of Saudi in Arabia, the Qatar royal family, the Bahrain royal family, royal what a lot of bullshit disroyal families, you know, are going to have problems. And they've got big problems because they've got very small populations, huge amount of guest workers, like ninety percent of the popula ninety percent of the population in Qatar are guest workers, thirty five percent of population in Saudi Arabia are guest workers and these are people who will never receive uh, any comp- any citizenship. So we've got this place called the Middle East and we have been supporting, the West has been supporting these disgusting authoritarian feudal monarchies for generations and we continue to support them irrespective of how they treat their people. Sometimes I feel sorry for the Taliban. Here they are implementing their draconian interpretation of Islam and we're all getting upset about it while the House of Saudi in the Arabian Peninsula has been holding public executions, keeping women out of you know out of view, you know, misogynist government, liquefies its opponents and we just say, oh well They've got good racehorses and we're very happy to see them in the Melbourne Cup. But that's a different story. Well, I'll give you a background in Sudan. I'll tell you why it matters. See, Yemen has been an interesting exercise because in Yemen has been a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And in that proxy war, the House of Saudi has been using mercenaries to bomb the shit out of Yemen and causing Huge amounts of suffering, communicable disease, starvation, and the list goes on and on. It continues today. But the problem with a bombing campaign is that with a bombing campaign, you really cannot destroy the opposition. You need soldiers on the ground. And this is where Sudan steps in. Now, at the end of 2019, after massive demonstrations across the country the Sudanese military which under a so called Islamic fundamentalist uh, program stripped the country of all its assets and involved itself in some vicious wars in Darfur in the west and South Sudan which led to the destruction of hundreds of thousands of people in the most brutal manner was forced was forced to pretend to bring the uh, leader, Omar al-Bashir, to justice. And they were forced to set up an interim sovereign council, which consisted of military appointees and civilian appointees. And most of the civilian appointees were appointed because of expertise in particular areas, not because of political affiliations. And the whole purpose of the sovereign council was to push the Sudanese state into a parliamentary democracy. Now, the Sudanese military concerned about the extent that the Sudanese had, you know, wanted to go back to a parliamentary democracy and concerned about their loss, their grip, loosening their grip on power, stage a coup this week. So what does it do have to do with Australia? Well, first of all, let's look at the crew. Coup. Now, the Sudanese Professionals Association, which was the organisation behind the 2019 revolt, 
which brought the military to its knees, has sent out a statement. And the statement was very simple. We urge the masses to go out onto the, into the streets and occupy them. Close all roads with barricades, stage a general labour strike and not cooperate with the coupists and use civil disobedience to confront them. In other words, they're talking about massive civil disobedience, massive peaceful campaigns. In 2019, over 300 Sudanese were shot dead by their own military. Today, we have seen the Sudanese military go out on the streets, aided and assisted by the paramilitary group, which is financed by the Sudanese military, called the Rapid Support Forces. Now, the Rapid Support Forces is just a name change for the Humeti group. And Mr Humeti, Humeti, who is still a major player in Sudanese politics, was the leader of the Janjaweed, that nasty, nasty paramilitary group which laid waste to Darfur in the west of Sudan and South Sudan. So we have the same culprits the same people now back in authority. They've arrested the Prime Minister. They've arrested the civilian members of the Council. They've arrested the leaders of the political parties which were emerging. Because remember, Sudan was a democratic society in the past until there was the military coup. They've arrested, they've closed down the media, they've closed down the airport, and they're justifying... They're justifying the coup, the general is justifying the coup, because the political parties were bickering among themselves. I mean, that's the nature of parliamentary democracy. Political parties bicker among themselves. But what's it got to do with us? Because, you know, most of us don't really care what's happening in Sudan or the rest of the world. It's just what's happening in our backyard. I'll tell you what's got to do with us. As the rivers of black gold dry up, and instability increases in the Middle East, especially in the feudal monarchies we've been supporting. These monarchies, like the Emirates, you know, the Emirates, that's Qatar, Bahrain, the list goes on and on, and uh, the House of Saudi, need muscle on the ground. They need troops on the ground. They can't rely on the United States anymore because it's now in a confrontational policy with China and it's deployed all its forces in that area. And what the Sudanese have is people. There are over 70 million Sudanese. They have a professional, in inverted commas, military, no conscript troops, which they're concerned about. The Sudanese military has sharpened its teeth in the struggle in Darfur and South Sudan, been involved in some of the most horrific carnage we've seen in the 20th and the past 20th and 21st century. And they are a force to be dealt with. Currently, the Sudanese military has Sudanese troops in Yemen on the ground. And what the Emirates and the House of Saudi need is people on the ground to solidify and ensure they continue to exercise power. 
And that's what the Sudanese coup is all about. Because if there was a civilian administration, there is no way a civilian administration would send out Sudanese troops to assist these feudal monarchies which have for for years exploited the people of Sudan. So it's all interlinked. What COVID-19 has done has shown us we are all one group of people on one planet and that sovereign borders don't really matter. And if you think what's happening in Sudan is irrelevant, think again. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. And now I'm just going to go through a few activities which are planned, which you, most likely you won't be able to join. The first one is on Sunday, the 7th of November at 11am. We'll be having a small gathering at the Italian War Cemetery at Murchison in Victoria to honour Francesco Fantine the anarchist who was murdered at Camp Love Day on the 16th of November 1942 by a fascist he was interned with. On the 11th of November, and the 11th of November marks the formation of the Ballarat Reform League, the organisation behind the Eureka Rebellion. It marks the day in 1880 when Ned Kelly was hung in Pentridge Prison, when there were riots the night before around Pentridge Prison. It marks Armistice Day on the 11th of November 1918 and it marks the dismissal of the Whitlam Labor government on the 11th of November 1975. We'll be meeting in the uh, quadrangle in front of the uh, uh, Tanaminoway Moorboy Hina Monument for uh, lunch midday. That's midday, Thursday the 11th of November. On the 3rd of December 2021, we will have the Eureka Celebrations, Modified Celebrations. And on Sunday, the 5th of December, it will be Open Day at the West Papuan Office, 1pm to 4pm. Don't forget the 20th of January next year will be Tanaminuwe and Morbohina Day. That's the 20th of January. And the public housing, everybody's business, uh, vigils in the steps of the Victorian Parliament House will recommence at midday on Thursday the 18th of November and we'll also have another vigil on Tuesday the 23rd of November from uh, 6.30pm to 7.30pm. So we're back out on the streets. Uh, We'll try to make things COVID safe for people. I encourage you to come out of your homes. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. As the war machine keeps turning. Death and hatred to mankind. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.